Enlighten Me, the podcast everyone is talking about with your host, Julian, where wisdom, knowledge, and experience meet the public. Hey, what's going on? What's going on? This is your host, Julian, on Enlighten Me. You already know what it is. Before we get started, if you can subscribe to my YouTube channel, just search Enlighten Me, as well as Google, Spotify, Amazon, and Apple. Just search Enlighten Me. If you want to get a hold of me, just go ahead and email me at enlightenmejulian at gmail.com. J-U-L-I-A-N. And before we go any further, 84 countries, baby. Almost 10K plays. We cooking. We cooking. And we have a good friend on uh, feed. How you doing? Doing my fine, are you? I'm great. Thank you for uh, joining me on Enlighten Me. Uh, if you can just briefly introduce yourself, it would be greatly appreciated. Um, I'm Fee. I'm originally from Jersey. I've moved around quite a bit all over the East Coast. I'm currently in Texas um, on the border of like Mexico and New Mexico. Um, and I'm just grateful to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah. So y'all already know what the topic is. Y'all clicked it. So. Uh... Suicide and self-harm. So, Fee, go ahead and enlighten me on the subject, please. All right. Well, where do, would you like me to begin? Uh, you can choose. It's up to you. All right. Well, um, I think I'll start in the beginning. When I was 10 years old, um, well, when I was nine, my parents split, and it affected me in a way I, I it, it affected me very deeply out of the other siblings I had I took it the hardest I guess maybe because I'm the oldest I don't know but um I started to slip into a depression and I started to cut myself I preferably would cut my legs because when the school that I went to I was colored I considered a colored girl <laughs> I went to a predominantly white school um and this was, was in like, Jersey this was in Jersey North Jersey wow. Morris County um, there's certain, only certain areas, Morris County, where other ethnic groups, you know, kind of come together. But the mo majority of the, the towns in Morris County are predominantly white. Um, as a child, I, I spent a lot of time growing up in the suburbs. So this was a suburban town. It was predominantly white. There's probably like two other colored kids and one Asian kid in my entire uh, grade. And so I got picked on because, you know, being my being ethnic, you know, triracial, I had more curves than the white girls. So and uh, oh. my puberty came in um, a lot sooner than the white girls. So I got picked on a lot for being what they would call fat. And it was during a time of Paris Hilton, not Kim Kardashian. So it wasn't cute to have some junk in the trunk. Uh -oh. and, um, and my thighs were what you would call thunder thighs, I guess. I, I, I just hated that area of my body the most. So that's the area that I would hurt. And I had a, I don't know how I got my hands on a box blade, one of those little box cutters, little thin box cutters. Um, and I just would use that to cut. So they were very fine lines, but that's what I would do. And I would even like make smiley faces if I was bored and want to switch it up. I mean, it was really just about releasing what all the things I was feeling inside that wasn't being addressed, wasn't being expressed, that I didn't even know I was going through. And this I, is from them picking on you about your body? Well, that's a other factor. But mm. it, the, the depression I slipped into was really because of what was going on at home. 
I remember the day when my father left. I remember that summer like it was yesterday. And it was a messy divorce. And there was a lot of crazy things going on. <laughs> crazy things going on. Things I was hearing that my dad was doing. Seeing my mom go in and out of court. And just hearing all that. Being in the whirlwind of it all. And no one stopping to check to see if I was okay. You know, as a mom, if I, my son was going through something like that, I would want to make sure my son's well-being is like, is he, is he okay? Like, but no one stopped to check on me. And I. And how old were you? I'm sorry. I was 10. You know, yeah. a lot of people go through divorces with their parents. But I think mine was so cha- My parents' divorce was so chaotic and there were so many egregious events that happened with them against each other and then the years following they really put me in the middle and used me and um and i was there with the courts you know when they were going in and out of it and i heard a lot of it so and i it just and it also just the fact that my parents divorcing like that struck me i slept in my bed with all my dad's shoes and his clothes and his stuff and then one day it was all gone and i freaked out my mom had taken it and all put in the garbage and she said, your dad's not coming back. And I'm like, <laughs> and I was crying. So it was, it was really, that was the catalyst. But, you know, of the other things that were happening at school didn't help. I, it was a lot of racism. I got picked on because I was fat in their eyes. And uh, I didn't have any friends. Um, yeah, it was just a hard time. By the time I was 11, I told the appropriate person about what I was doing. I don't want to really put people's names and places out there because I don't want to disparage anyone's character, especially when they're not like that anymore. Um, I told them and they just looked at me and they said, Oh, I'm sorry you did that. And I didn't notice. And I was like, okay. (laughs) And I didn't know what to expect anyway. I just thought it just kind of like came out of me and to share this with them. I I didn't even know what to look for as an 11 year old. Um, And then by the time I was 14, uh, I'm still in this suicidal, you know, space and I was kind of playing with being a tomboy a little bit and I was very uh, aggressive in that manner and then by the time I was 13 like late 13th year and beginning of my 14th year I tried to kill myself about four times with medication and every time I did it I didn't realize I was doing it um the fourth time and uh, the fourth time that I, I attempted suicide was when they it caught up to me and I was put in the hospital. What happened was one morning I was getting ready to go to school. I went in our bathroom. I had a headache. At the end of the time, I, I got chronic migraine. So I, took, I saw that there was a, ty- a bottle of Tylenol in the cupboard. So I took what I needed for the headache and that was it. And then there was something that told me to take more. So I took more. And I kid you not. It was almost like as if someone came up behind me and put their hand against mine and pushed it up and pushed the bottle up and like held it there and like was basically forcing me to keep drinking. No one was actually forcing me to keep drinking, but I guess the picture I'm trying to paint is that it was like, it wasn't me. I, it Mm. was like, it was this subconscious autopilot mode I went in and I just kept drinking and drinking and drinking and drinking. I guess subconsciously I was attempting and just not even realizing it. So I have a Um, question. I read that uh, usually people don't want to die. They just want the pain of living to stop. If mm-hmm. you, how, do you, how do you feel about that? I believe it has its place, but I think that everyone is different. Um, I, 
I, I, I can only speak from my experience. I'm mm-hmm. sure that that's true because that's what the self-harming did for me. The self-harming was a release from the pain I was experiencing. Um, that was my escape. That was a way I escaped it. And it, it was, and it did do something for me because it was like a gratification where I released it. When I was attempting, I really just did not want to be here. But when I was attempting, when I was young in this, at this time, I was doing it, not even realizing I was doing it. It was like I was on autopilot. Mm. Um, I know for me, every time I've attempted, it's because I did not want to be here. Um, and I can, I can uh, open that up a little bit later. But at this point, I'm on autopilot. I'm doing it without even realizing. I get on the bus to school. I start to feel a little wanky. And I'm 14. I've never been on drugs. I've never did anything. So I didn't know. I, I just was like, you know, on autopilot. I was just letting it all happen to me. I didn't even realize that I'm high. <laughs> you know, I didn't realize that. By the time I got to gym class, I started to faint. And so the gym teacher had me go to the nurse's office. I obviously ended up telling what happened. They get the paramedics. They send me to CCIS. CCIS is called uh, Children's Crisis Intervention um, System. I think it's system. There's a children's mental health hospital. And there is where I learned what I was doing, that I was depressed, that I was suicidal. I didn't, I know it sounds hard to believe, but I really didn't realize that that's what I was doing. I thought that everything I was experiencing was normal. Yeah, and it's I, common to you. Yeah. I thought everything I was experiencing was normal, and I didn't realize that like this was for real. But they blew it up for me, and you know, reality hit. A few months later, I started... Um, I was working at a camp as a volunteer for the other kids, and um, they were... I was getting picked on a lot at home and there. It's kind of the same situation. And I was just so angry about everything that it did. It was broad daylight out in the park bench. You know, anybody could have walked in on me doing this. But I had just taken up a plastic fork knife and started, like, scraping the hell out of my arm. And I felt so much better. Um, And then not too long after that, there was someone in my home who was inappropriate with me. And... Um, on multiple occasions that same summer and that same month and I they denied it and because they denied it and then they turned not only denied it but then turned around said I was lying about my truth I lost my head and I don't want to say exactly what I tried to do because I don't know how it could ever be used against me but um I went after that person and Long story short, the cops ended up arresting me, and I was sent to the hospital again. Um, there in the hospital, they diagnosed me as bipolar disorder, um, based on everything. And but what I found was that in the hospital, every single child was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and they, we were all put on the same medication. And then like, fast like forward, every like every child in there. Yes, I think there was only like one or two who who they didn't do that. To. How many how many children were in there? It was about twenty, a little over twenty, some something between twenty and twenty five. Oh, that's interesting. And they all range from different ages, some as young as eleven, and as old as seventeen. And they said that we're all bipolar, well, except for two, and that we and we they put us on all the same medication. 
And, you know, it's what I found interesting was that a year later from then, when I'm by the time I'm home, I'm seeing on commercials advertisements for the medication we were on. So then I realized, oh, we were just a bunch of guinea pigs. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Can you, yeah. can, you say, uh, can you say the medication? Abilify. I'll have to Google it later. Abilify is a bipolar disorder uh, med- medication. They still use it now to this day or you don't know? No, no, no. So what had happened with that diagnosis was that after I left the hospital, I was given a DIFUS worker. I was a property of the state. Um, I didn't, uh, didn't belong to my mother anymore. And um, I went through a, a shelter program, a program at a shelter in Newark, New Jersey. And then from there, I went to another shelter. And then from that shelter, I went to a long-term program and, uh, in, in South Jersey. And, and moving up, like, around like that, did that increase your depression or anything like that? Or are you just, what? No, I, 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 uh, no, it, moving around didn't in- increase my depression. I was actually happy to not be in my home. Okay. I was okay with not being in my home. And I was still able to have visits from my mother and talk to her on the phone. I was actually okay with it. What I think affected me a little bit was the kind of kinds of environments and that I was in, um, in the shelters. Uh, but but it all it worked out in the end. In the end, being in the system actually did good for me. But it doesn't always do good for everyone. A lot of yeah. people, it, it's a bad experience. For me, it actually did some good. Um, by the time I get done with the two shelters. I'm in a long-term facility treatment center for troubled children. And a lot of them are kids from inner cities. Um, so I've, I've, I've experienced a lot of different things outside of my normal uh, <laughs> growing up in the suburbs. <laughs> um, I mean, I already got a taste of that in Newark. And I stayed in Passaic for a little bit and all those inner cities. But, like, when you're around people who live, like, a certain way all the time, it has a different effect on you. So I had to, I remember, it wasn't always a great experience, you know, there. I worked on my mental health. But being with the kids, like, I remember one morning I was sleeping on the couch. And just imagine you're in a deep, peaceful sleep. And all of a sudden, boom, you get punched in the face. Like, that's not a way no one wants to wake up to. Right. So <laughs> it was a pretty rough ride being there. There was times where I had to fight when I didn't want to fight. Um, there was times where me and my like I would have people who were but I was a buddy with, and all of a sudden they just flip a switch and they start punching you like it was crazy. I remember oh once I got pepper sprayed by a cop because there was a riot that I wasn't even involved in. But because I was around the cop, he just pepper sprayed me and like he threw me in the cop car. He turned up the heat so it would burn us more. The well, pepper spray it, didn't go away for like months. It was uh, in that in that way. That was difficult. Um, How old were you? I was 14 and 15. I was in the system in the ages of 14 and 15. Okay. Yeah, it was, it was a rough ride. So <laughs> you got to find this cop. What's his name? <laughs> yeah, so I can definitely relate to bad cops, uh, experiences with bad cops. But, um, uh, and it, oh, oh, something happened to me that did affect me also in this regard. Um, where when I was, I'm going to open up really big right now, in the shelter in Newark, New Jersey, I trusted a friend of mine. There was a girl I befriended. I trusted her. We were already there for a long time. We already gained seniority. 
We were granted special permission because we were the most well-behaved children. And with the special permission came a room that had a fire escape. Well, we just, we both decided that since we weren't, certain things were happening where we were like, well, why are we behaving well if this is happening? So she was like, Fee, let's run away. And then I said, where are we going to run away to? Why would we do that? She goes, I know these guys that are my sister's friends. And And I'm like, I, I, she was my friend, so I trusted her. And I'm young, so I'm wet behind the ears in life. I don't know anything. I just trusted her, and I went along with it. Long story short, we ended up both being taken advantage of, and they weren't guys that, that, her, that were her sister's friends. They ended up being guys she met off of MySpace. Oh, and MySpace. It was terrible, and the authorities were known about it. Were, you know, uh, okay. How old were these uh, douchebags? How old were they? So when I, now I'm looking back, I believe many of them were just in their later teens, like 18, 19, and, and through their early, younger, uh, younger 20s. I would say maybe even mid-20s. That's what, yeah, trash. They're, none of them were too old, but they, were, they, were, they took us to a trap house. I didn't know that's where we were going. I had no idea about any of that. I just trusted my friend that she said that these are guys that she knows, and I was very wrong for that. She ended up getting away before I could. I was stuck there for a week. And um, wait, while you're in, like where you were living, they didn't come look for you or what? They can only do so much, especially when they don't know where we are. So she went, got, went, got out and had gotten back to the shelter. And yeah. she told them. And that's when, when she told them, that's when the cops got involved. And the guys were getting phone calls from the authorities because she gave them the numbers, the phone numbers. So that, 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 to, that, that's, that was how far they could have, they were able to reach me. And you said um, you were how old? 15? I was 14. 14. And you were at a, hold on a second, we got back up. You were at a shelter, not a group home or nothing like that? No, it was a shelter. It was a, it was a shelter for, for children, though, in the system. It's very specific. Mm-hmm. Um. Okay. Is is it's defined as a shelter because it's a short it's a short-term living facility. It's not meant for you to stay months, months, and months and ends, okay. like up to two months max. Um, and we that and it's funny because when all this was going down, I was about to hit my two months. I was just hitting my two months and I was supposed to move on to another place. Uh they found me, and then once they found me, all my bags were ready for me to go. My diapers worker was there. Um and uh, they said that they ended up just dropping the case because literally the cop told me these things happen all the time. What? That, that's what he said. The first, the, the first like real, like, I guess, p- reason on paper was because they couldn't identify all the men. They were only able to identify two. Um, then the second reason, the real reason is, yeah, you know, these things happen all the time. That's what he said to me. And then I was just like, I, was, I guess I was pretty numb. I was very numb. Oh yeah, That's I, I was like, everything was just happening, and <laughs> um, so then I went to another shelter, um, and I, I because of the experience, I stayed my ass in the shelter. I ain't go nowhere, <laughs> you know. So <laughs> nah. I, I stayed in the shelter. Then they moved me to the long term facility, um, for be, for troubled children, and I was there at the long term facility for eight months, and I stayed there. I never ran away from there as well. <laughs> um, and there is when I was going through the program, you know, they had a whole team. I think I had a count, I had a counselor, I had a therapist, I had a psychotherapist and I had 
a director of psycho um a director of psycho of, of all of that you know um like the parents and then i had different people who did different things and uh this like that, that is the program where while i was there for some time the guy the psychiatrist revoked my diagnosis of bipolar disorder and he said i remember the day like it was yesterday i was sitting in there and he was looking at me and i was just talking to him and he was like fee i don't think you're bipolar i think you're just depressed and i looked up at him i'm like you're right <laughs> <laughs> and, I was like, and then so he took me off of abilify and he put me on a bunch of other stuff um he gave me a pill to go to sleep a pill that helped me wake up he gave me a pill for my depression he gave me a pill for anxiety uh, so I was on Topa Topamax, Trazodone, and Prozac. I was on those three. Um, I forgot which one did what, but I was on yeah, those her, three. I, her I, Prozac's I, pretty heavy. I Yeah, my mom, when I started getting on that, my mom, when she came to visit me, she was <laughs> like, Phoenicia, aren't you excited that we're here visiting you? And I was, looked at her, like, also emotion. I said, Yes, I'm so excited. Uh, zombified you, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it literally puts a lid on your personality. It really does. It snuffs out every avenue of like self-expression. So, um, I, I I stayed on the meds. Um, I worked the program, and I I found a new found hope for myself. I saw, you know, that there's options out there to live life in a healthy way. No one told me these things. This is why I'm going to be so adamant about speaking to my son. I, I look back and I don't remember people like talking to me and telling me, hey, there is a life that you can design for yourself. Like there's, you can have dreams and you can pursue things. No one told me those things. I learned all that in that program. There's a lot of people who saw my potential, which I'm very thankful for. And once I got out, I had this newfound hope of, you know, um, having a future for myself. So How old when were you I, then? I was 15, getting ready to go into freshman year at high school. Uh, a lot of stuff happened in 14 to 15 years old. Yes. <laughs> it was a busy two years. Um, and uh, so I went into high school with, you know, the, well, they were the school system was nervous to put me in mainstream school, public school, because I was coming out of the system. They didn't know. So I, which I respected and they put me in a reformative school, which is no longer, it was called Blackwell Academy street school in Dover, New Jersey. And, and I did so well there that they ended up cutting my time short and sent me to mainstream school. And I did really well my freshman year going into sophomore year, my family was being uprooted to Mexico. And I, there was discussion about what they should do with me, if I should stay alone, if they should send me away. Um, it, without exposing too many family details, I just definitely wasn't done right there. Um, the priority should have been to keep me in school, especially if, I'm, if I have well intentions. So I just started to get in a depressive mode again. And on top of that, there was things happening at home that we're not okay. Let's just say that without exposing too many things about people. Um, and, and I, coming out of the system, I had learned, because up until that point, I always just obeyed my authorities. I never asked a question. I never said no. I just did whatever the, the adults told me to do. Being in the system showed me that 
that um, <laughs> it kind of exposed me to children defying authority. And I picked up on that. And that gave me comfortability to feel like I can say no, or I can stand up and say how I feel. And like, you're hurting me, this is wrong, or, you know, whatever, whatever it was. So I started to do that at home, on top of the disposition that the adults were already in. So me being defiant with their disposition was not a good combination. And it was like a war. I would go home every day and it was a war. I remember there was times that I would just go home when it's 10 o'clock and just spend my the rest of my time in the local park hiking because I did not want to go home. It was a war. It was a battlefield over there. Even when there was times where I wasn't being defiant or not stepping up and stepping my, standing my ground, there would be times where I'll just be chilling and all of a sudden someone comes up to me and it's just war. Um, I would do my best to stay out of the fray and it's just war. You couldn't escape it. Um, so going back to your question before, you said people are trying to escape reality. It's not that they really want to die. I guess that that is definitely like a, a driving factor. Um, because I think that that is the, the, the driving, maybe I, you see when I did it, when I was 16, I, I, I it's such a subconscious thing. I kind of just slipped into it and you don't, it creeps up on you. So when you say that, I guess, uh, yes, it's always a driving factor. Maybe I was just trying to escape my space, my, my reality, but I wanted to, die. I know, for, especially for that one. And the other time I tried to suicide my car, I wanted to die. Um, I so I, I guess with this everything that was going on and then now I saw I had no hope in my future because everything was getting uprooted and my family was going to Mexico. I just was like, oh, there's no hope, you know, and I just slipped into this depression again. Um, and I was getting pushed over the, there was an incident where I was getting pushed over the edge again, this war. And I was getting, and no matter how many times I said to stop, no matter how many times I tried to disengage. I just, this, the thing that was happening, they just would not let go and they would just be in my face. So mm. I, I didn't know what to do besides have a freak out because I, cause saying no didn't stop. Disengaging didn't, I mean, didn't stop it. Disengaging didn't stop them from keep coming at me. So I just lost my mind and I broke, I took up a, a, a lamp I had in my room. I broke it. I picked up the pieces. And in front of everyone that was there in the house, which was everyone, including my little brother and sister, God, you know, God bless them. I just went ham on my arms and I cut and I still have the scars to this day. I, I know plenty of people in my workplace have noticed them. So you had a family function. Everybody's chilling, playing like Uno and everything. And you broke a lamp. Well, like, well, no one was playing Uno, <laughs> and oh. it was in the house in our home. It was in the in our private residence. It's just that the whole household was there, mm. which at the time was eight people in a two bedroom train apartment. So, oh, put, yeah, put two and two together. It was not a peaceful home environment. <laughs> so, um, no, there was a specific person that kept antagonizing me and kept saying stuff and they saw I was getting upset. And even when they saw I was getting upset, they kept doing it even worse. And when I would tell them, leave me alone, they would do it worse. And then when I would walk away, they would follow me. And it, well, I there's know not they, many places to go in that small home. Exactly. 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 So I felt very trapped. 
And, and, and I, and I think, I don't know, I don't remember why I didn't just leave the house. Cause that was one of my things. I would just leave when I get to that place. I, I forget. I think we were getting ready to actually go somewhere. Can't remember, but I remember there was a reason why I couldn't just leave like I typically did. And they were not letting up. I was literally in a corner with this person in my face. And so I just lost my mind, picked up the lamp. I threw it and the, the glass pieces were pretty thick. So I have, my scars are pretty thick. Um, and I even bothered to clean it up. I didn't clean up anything. They stood there and they saw me and they were like, oh, we gotta go. And <laughs> like, oh, we're out. And all of them left. And then I was left alone in the house, picking up my own pieces, literally. Um, and they all just left the house because of my little freak out. And, um, so I, I was, I was, I, I think a, con a consistent theme with every instance, with every episode is that I was always left to, def to, to pick up my own self. Mm. And this is where alcoholism kind of came in later on. But not too long after that, I, I, again, I slipped into depression and I, I laid, I, my mother had these pain medications. And I, they were like these little baby ones and it was a new bottle. I took the entire bottle. It was like over 200 or something. I took all the pills and I drank them all down with beer and everyone was just having dinner, lounging around, just talking. And yes, it's a small apartment. So I'm just walking around doing this. No one has no idea. No one's paying attention to me and I don't care. I'm not looking for someone's attention. I'm not looking for someone to stop me. I'm not looking for it. I'm just doing what I got to do. I go straight to my bed and I lay down um, and I don't remember anything besides waking up a day and a half later. And I woke up and then my mother, she goes, oh, she goes, you were asleep for a long time. And I was Damn. like, <laughs> and I was like, is she breathing? Like, what are we doing here? Like, she didn't get up to use the bathroom or nothing as well. Exactly. So when that was at the moment, the response didn't surprise me. At the moment, the response didn't even bother me. All I was was just angry that I woke up. And, and now, but then, then later, years later, I look back and I was like, she didn't care. Of course, later I got angry about it. By the time well, I, just, I didn't even how, care about it. So two questions. How old were you now? 16 about? Yeah, I was 16. I was, and then uh, were you still on medication at this time? No, I wasn't. I, I had gotten off of it um, because the medication, like, it, like, like we said, it zombifies you. It was getting to a point where I was starting to space out too much and it was just not working for me anymore. Um, and it, it fluctuates because remember, you're still a teenager. Your body is still changing. You know, oh, yeah, definitely. it's a lot of chemical balances going on. Exactly. So that's what was happening to me. So I ended up coming off of it. Um, but I was fine because I, I had a drive. I had something I was working for and a hope. And I was okay with that. Um, but uh, along the way, you know, a lot of doors were broken. <laughs> a lot of <laughs> windows were broken. A lot of, it was just chaos. Home was just chaos. So, um, so then I, I got up from the bed when I went. So I heard her say that I went and I looked in the mirror and my entire face is like, has this film around it and it's sticky and gross. And my lips were all white with this sticky film. And I just, there was a vacancy in my eyes. 
And I was like, whoa. All I could, I was just so numb inside. All I can remember was thinking, whoa, look at me, you know? <laughs> and I was just so angry that I was still there. I was like, I did all that to myself for nothing. So I'm so fucking here. And, you know, my mother, no one, no one noticed that I had white lips and a frothy film around my face and my body was like losing its color. Well, even, well, even if they did, they probably didn't, like you said, they didn't care. So. Right, right. So. Well, so so fast forward. You have a child. Did you have any more um, episodes or anything like that after you had a child? Not like to that. No, not to that extremity. No, I had one. Mo I had a moment where I kind of broke down, but I kind of imploded inside instead of doing all this, all that other stuff. Um, by the time I had my son, all of those behaviors. I really made peace with it and it really was in the past and it still in the, is in the past. I had a, a mental health break where I kind of was just so wounded by a person that I, I, I kind of almost was like emotionally paralyzed where I, it manifested in a physical way where I couldn't pick up my arms, I couldn't pick up my legs, but I wasn't doing all this other stuff. That This all was just only before my pregnancy so you kind of almost triggered what was before i guess you you love this guy or girl or whatever uh, you know i don't judge you loved whoever it was and they were probably trash and then they put you in that state as my son's father so that's why it affected me so okay, much he's not trash <laughs> <laughs> no he's he's not trash he's not in our relationship he was and i know he probably won't be having me saying that, but he knows too. He knows, and he he'll tell me all yes, the time. Yes, man, we we're we're pretty uh peasantry during our <laughs> younger ages. Yeah, and he knows, and we've had countless conversations about this. So yeah, there was a moment there where the father of my 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 child that I love so much, and I, you know, having a family was everything. It's it's pretty, you know. It, there's not like it's not like some guy I'm dating could say something to me and I'm like I'll lose it. No, it's not like oh, that. Yeah, no, no, it no. was just this is my son's father and my whole heart was so invested in this and I and this and also like anybody would know the person you have a child with that's a, it's a different level. It's a whole other layer. Oh, it definitely, definitely. Yeah, and it was my first. It's my first. You know, I'm I'm sure in the next time around I'm gonna be bigger and better, but. It was my first. So he says something to me that really struck a chord in me. Um, yeah. So then, <laughs> uh, so after that happened, when I was 16, I ended up getting moved, uh, shipped to Italy. And my family moved to Mexico. I was in Italy for about five months. And I stayed in Spain for two. And it was a great experience. But it was a very lonely experience because um, the girl I was staying with, she didn't really like me. So, uh, and they didn't speak English. So I try. I learned Italian, but I didn't learn too much. Um, so um, yeah, so I, I left. I went to go be Mexico. My my family. I get to Mexico, and you know, I guess two to three weeks in, things start coming up a little bit. And there was an incident. You know, for the most part, it is peaceful though. It was not like the, all the all the chaos that was going on when I was sixteen. By this time, I'm 17. But there was an incident, which was the last time I saw my mother. I, something was brought up at dinner. I had just got done cooking for everyone. I made them all an authentic Italian meal. <laughs> and, and, and something was brought up. And I made a comment. And the person was still denying 
what they did to me or tried to do to me. And I was just, it brought back like that feeling, you know, from, from when I was 14 and how are you going to do something like that to me? And then have the nerve to lie about it and not only lie about it, but turn around and say that I'm lying about something so serious and something that is, you know, so it, it was just the audacity of it all. So I started fighting with my, with my family and um, it caught physical between my mother and I really bad. Um, and she ended up calling the cops on me. And I remember the other person there, he was threatening me, telling me he's going, we had a dog, we had a Mastiff, um, the Mastiff dog, you know, they're big. So the dog chain that, that we had for him was a big dog chain. It was a metal dog chain. He takes, picks up the dog chain and I'm getting, I'm getting a little anxiety right now. Just talking about it. He picks Uh-oh. up the dog chain. Well, I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay. He picks up the dog chain. He starts smacking the dog chain. Like when you do the belt, like you like click it. Yeah. And he starts coming down and he comes down the stairs. I remember like it was yesterday and he goes, he goes, I'm going to beat your fucking ass with this chain. I'm going to beat your fucking ass with this chain. And I went right up to him. I went in his eyes. And I said, do it, do it. Beat my ass. Go ahead. And then I just kept telling Look, him. Look, I'm there. <laughs> Cause it was real. (laughs) And he looked at me and he just kept looking at me and I was sitting 10 toes down. I moved, I said, do it. And then he just kept looking at me and then I don't know what happened in him. I have a theory, but I'm not sure, but something changed and he, 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 there was humility in his eyes and he put down the chain. He, he walked away and my mother was telling him to do it. So when I saw her doing that, and with everything happening, I was like, nah, this is ain't it. This ain't it. The cops came. They arrested me. And this is, a, this is a Mexican cop car. So it's not like a little comfy, cozy, whoop, whoop. This is a truck. They got an open air. They chain you to the, the bar. You know, you got all these guys with big guns around you. It's not a nice ride. <laughs> and, um, but I was just happy. I was so happy to be in that cop car even though it wasn't like a comfy U.S. Uh, American one. I was so happy to be in that truck and just to be out of the house. <laughs> I was so happy. And, and then they brought me to the jail. I was there for three days and three nights. And um, it wasn't, uh, and again, it's not American jail. It's Mexican jail. This shit won't clean, was not clean. And there was no cleaning lady to come around. There was no breaks. You were in that cell for three days. And three nights, <laughs> you never left. And if you had to pee, the, the toilet's right there. Like many, like many jail cells. But um, no, nah, they didn't clean it. I remember sleeping with ants, cockroaches. I remember. Oh. Yeah, it was not fun. But I was, and, and, as, and it was cold. They didn't give you no blanket. It was just cold stone, you know. And they feed you the same rice and beans every day. I never ate. But three days and three nights, I did not eat. That's why I started to hear God's voice. <laughs> And, um, and I was as terrible as the conditions were, I was just so happy. I wasn't at home. I would take that over that house any day. And then I was thinking about everything and reflecting on the third day. And, and God told me, he literally said like, like uh, all the other times in the past as a, as an adolescent, every time I would have a, a thing in the, in the home. 
every time there would be a piece of me that would hold back to not leave completely. I would want to run away, but there'd be a part of me that just wouldn't let go. This was the first time that I had no reservations at all. And, I, and, and God told me, he said, I, I believe this was God, God's voice. He said, it's time to go. It's time to, it's time to go. It's time to leave her. And, and, and I had peace with that. And I knew that's what I was meant to do now. So the, the person comes up to me in the jail cell and they said, hey, you know, this is Mexico. So they're more transparent than these cops over here. So they come up and they say, hey, we call your mom. She said, you know, that she we told her it's time to come get you. She said she she told us to leave you here. And then I <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I figured I said, just let me out. I'll find my way. And then, and, you know, Cancun, Mexico is a big city. So as a 17 year old with like a couple of pesos. I got a bus ride to this guy that I was, we were working with and he saw my mother and I, he saw the dynamic, he saw I was unhealthy. He called things out before I could ever, I ever even said anything. He called things out before they even happened. So he, he was on my side. So he helped me get in contact with my dad. My dad helped me get a flight to Jersey. And it was just a matter of time of living on the Mexican streets until it was time for me to get on that that plane ticket home. I got in contact with my sister on MySpace. I said, hey, Sophia, you know, get Royce, get your stuff, come with me. We have an opportunity to get out of here. And they said, well, she wanted to. I know, I believe in my heart she wanted to, but I know that she was very little. She was like 10, 11. He was, my brother was nine, you know. Well, he was 10, she was 11. And I went to go get them. I risked seeing the lady again <laughs> on all that just to go get them. And then when I got there, uh, you know, they, they were, she wasn't, they weren't going to go through with it. And my mother was saying, if I go with my dad or my uncle, that she'll disown me. She'll never talk to me again. I said, okay, okay, whatever. So I left and um, I get on, I get on the plane after seven days of no shower, same clothes that I got arrested in. I was gross, and, but I was surviving on the streets, literally. And uh, I, I get to my dad, and it's all cool. Um, Do you still talk to your mother to this day? Oh, yeah. So I, I didn't speak to her for two years. And um, now I do. It, it, but it didn't. We have a great relationship now, and she has grown leaps and bounds by the grace yeah. of God, by the grace of God. I sincerely believe if it weren't for her having God in her life and, 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 um, you know, being a child of God, that she would still be stuck in her ways. Cause a lot of people her age, once they get, once they hit a certain age, they don't change. Do you, um, uh, does it affect your relationships now? Whether would it be friendships, um, relationships or anything like that? I think that it may have in my earlier years. Um, I don't, I don't see, so far I haven't seen that it, you know, I see it, I see that my relationships with my parents, both of them affect me the same way that it does any average person, you know, just the way you're responded to, you know, and I, I'm seeing with my son some things, I'm more, I'm more responsive to him because of this, Yes. but I, I'm seeing that sometimes I might have a moment where I, default to how my mother responded to me or how my father responded to me. Both of them were very dismissive. And I catch myself though. And yeah. I, and I turn that around and that's part of big, breaking generational curses. I don't want my son to ever experience any of that. Yeah. So, um, I think on, on, on very like primal, 
primal, you know, generic ways it does, but not anything too extreme or like, am I able to have relationships? I'm okay. Um, I, 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 what I have grown out of, which I had a lot in my earliest year, early years was what my therapist would have called a dismissive avoidant attachment style of dealing with people. So, you know, we see on Instagram a lot, hey, I'm going to cut you off and I don't care. So that's very unhealthy to just cut people off. <laughs> it is, and I'm not saying it's not, it doesn't have its place when you, it's time to remove people from your life. But that's different than just cutting people off and be dismissive in confrontation or in conflict resolution. You got to see it through. And just because someone doesn't do something that you like or doesn't measure up to whatever <laughs> crazy expectations you have in your mind, doesn't mean you just, you know, you just throw away the person. So I was very dismissive avoidance. I, I dismissed a lot of things. I cut people off and I preferred to not have anyone in my life than to deal with people. Um, I, but I've worked through all of that. I've learned to just love people as they are and wherever they're at and to not have, ex you know, bad expectations, false, um, you know, illusions, expectations of people. I've learned, I learned, I've grown out of that. So. Okay. Um, yeah. And, but, you know, the depression, I worked a lot and I worked through a lot with my mom, but the depression was still there, especially since there was certain family dynamics that were kind of still in the air. Um, and, uh, but I was getting stronger and, but I still had, it was still sensitive though. It was still vulnerable. So the final time when I tried to kill myself at 21 uh, I believe if I wasn't under the influence of alcohol, I wouldn't have done this. I worked at King of Diamonds. It was a notorious strip club. Um, and uh, that strip club, anybody who's worked there would tell you that there's an energy, there's a deep, dark, heavy energy in that place that just, you can't miss it. There will be people that will come in sometimes and be like, why does everybody look mad? And I'm, and I'm like, I don't know, you know, some of us kind of just glazed over. I guess for me is because I'm used, I've, I've been, I've, I've experienced dark, you know, spaces like that. So it didn't phase me, but it definitely affected me. I'm very sensitive to energy and all those things. So it definitely started to kind of affect me little by little. And, uh, you know, not being on a good sleep schedule and it takes a toll on you long term. I was working there for seven months. And I guess, and I was still working on things from the past. I was still working on all the trauma. I was still working through all that stuff out. And um, one day I went to a strip, uh, strip club after work. I had 151 proof of rum um, with my son's father, who at the time was just a friend. I got in the car. I'm driving all drunk and it's the morning already. And this lady, I noticed she's trying to like, you know, and, and it's funny because before this happens, I'm already in a mode where I'm thinking about all this heavy crap. And I'm like, you know, yeah. the demons are talking to me. They're, they're speaking, honey. And I'm in this kind of like zombie mode. And the, the woman, I noticed she almost hit me. She kind of just swerved one of those things and she got back in her lane. And I was thinking in the moment, oh, she's going to hit me. She's going to hit me. And she didn't. And I was like, oh, she ain't going to hit me. She, I'll do it myself. So I, I know it sounds so stupid. <laughs> so I took, I took the steering wheel and I swung it over. I ended up rolling, flipping my car four times in the air, knocking over a, a, a fence, knocking over a palm tree. 
you know, palm trees are strong, honey. So. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Yeah. And, and the, the car landed on all fours like a cat on its wheels. And I had no seatbelt on. I looked around when I landed. All of the, the, the glass and everything was broken. Yeah, I've, I've been a very extreme person. <laughs> so oh, in the past. I'm, I've been learning throughout these years, especially since then, how to have well, you, balance in my emotionality. You didn't get arrested or anything like that when the cops came for drinking and driving? They didn't know I was, had alcohol in my system. Mm. I had become such a functioning alcoholic, and I think that's why I wouldn't have been ever able to see I was an alcoholic when I was younger, because I knew how to act. I knew how to be in control. I know how it was only certain times when I would get triggered in my drunken moments and start like having these deep belly aching cries from the gut and just like be like, <gasps> like crying, you know? So only some moments, but for the most part, at that point, I was a functional alcoholic. I knew how to handle myself. And um, like, like I, I drank five doubles of 151. I was still able to drive. Like it was almost like being sober for me. So the, the car landed, all this glass was around me. I have not one scrape, not one cut at all. And I'm still in this seat upright. And I get out of the car and I'm just amazed that I'm still alive. I'm amazed I even have a scratch on me. And I look around and then I see the cops come. Well, actually, they already were coming and they opened the door for me and they helped me out. And I see more cops coming by the time I get out. And... Then they escort me to, because uh, I was deep in the woods at that point. So they escorted me to the ambulance and they were doing tests on me to see if I can walk, to see if I was fine. And the cops, I kid you not, they had their hands up in the air. They were like, their jaws were dropped to the ground. Their eyes were like, what the hell? They could not believe that I was a-okay. It was like nothing happened to me. I had no concussion, nothing. And I was like amazed myself that I was fine and I had no concussion. And I turned around and said, y'all can't tell me God ain't real. And that's when the alcohol started coming out. <laughs> but oh. they, 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 just thought, they just thought I was shocked. So they thought I was acting out like that. But no, that was the alcohol. They didn't know I had a drink. I didn't tell them either. And, um, and I was like, y'all can't tell me God ain't real. Y'all can't tell me God ain't real. I'm still here. I'm still here. And then, <laughs> and then out of, once I got out of all this and like I got, you know, a couple of days later, I, I did really sit back and I was like, wow, like I got to stop trying to kill myself because it's obviously not going to work. And I saw that God's give, still giving me a pulse. And that means I have a purpose. So oh, that's when it started to change for me. That's when the suicidal stuff really started to stop. Like that's when I really just gave up inside. Even though I had already had a years from 16 to 21 of not trying, I was still suicidal. So oh. this moment took away the desire. It took away the thoughts. It really took everything away. Like God really showed out here. And from there, I started going to church more. I started getting my relationship with him back and back in my relationship with him. Cause I was like, well, I owe it to him. And like, if he, if I'm still here, I might as well. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, no, it, brought me, it brought me back to God. And what would, what would you suggest that to those who are listening um, about self-harm and suicide? I'm going to be very honest. I don't know if I have anything to suggest except because I, and I've thought about this too. I've thought about what I would tell someone who's in my same shoes. And I think it's difficult for me to say because 
I know exactly what it's like. And I know it's not too much you can tell people to help them. They, you really got to want it for yourself. And yeah. if you don't want it, if you don't want it for yourself, then you're in a constant state of self-loathing, which is usually associated with a constant state of victimization. You're victimizing yourself. And which is, you know, I don't know where I was going with that, but you're in a state of self-loathing and victimization. You can't do anything with that. So I think that you have to just want it for yourself. You know, there was a, I wanted, I had a dream when I was in high school. What my dream was to pursue, was to pursue school to become a cop. And the reason what that, that, the, that was, is because when I was going through all the chaos at home, there was an officer, cops were calling me in the, my house all the time. There was an officer that came by mo more frequently than others. He sat me down in the kitchen and this is the last time I ever saw him. And the last time a cop ever came to the house, he sat me down in the kitchen and he was looking at me and he was talking to me like for real. And he was talking to me from the heart. And he looked at me like I was a person and not some delinquent, badass kid. He, he got on my level and had his eye, he has compassion in his eyes. And he looked at me and he looked at me, you know? And he said, you're smart. You're this, you're that. Like he saw me. And when I knew when he was saying those things, it was coming from a place of him seeing me. And for the first time in my life up to that point, I felt like if there was ever like this dark glass that was, you know, in, in the, in covering my eyes, it, those, the, the glass shattered and broke. And there was like this light that came through my eyes. Like that's literally how it felt. He, I don't know. I can't put into words what it was he did for me. But all I know is that it helped a lot. Yeah. And all I know is what God did for me also pulled me out of it. And I think what I can take away from both of them is that there's purpose. There's purpose for your life. If you're here, you have purpose. And, and again, you have to want it for yourself as well. You, and I think that you, there's no room to complain about being suicidal or depressed. And I know that sounds tough, but because you're doing it to yourself. There's plenty of resources out here. There's plenty of people who are willing, you know, there's a hotline, there's resources. Yeah. There's I ways. I'm gonna put that hotline out there too, because I know that uh, it's nine eight eight. You can either call or text it for those who are listening. I think the one last thing I'll say about that is, you know, yes, you have to want it for yourself, but and you may not believe in God, but ask Him in a, in a very from a very honest place. Even if you're at your rock bottom, even if you aren't, especially then, like just ask God. He will come to your life. There's plenty of stories. There's plenty of times where people. And especially even people who don't believe where they get to a place where like they look around and they don't know and they're just talking out to God and they're, they're crying out to God and God answers. God comes through. Oh, he does. Uh, so I think that that if, if anything, if all else fails, just ask God, just get on your knees, come to, you know, with everything you have, your, your trauma, the, the, your feeling of defectiveness, your all everything, come and bring it to him. And say, hey, I don't know what to do with this, but I know I can't do this anymore. Help me. I need your help. Jesus said, you know, um, you call me and call on me and I will be there. So he and he will. He will. Amen. That's all I well, have to say. Well, I appreciate you. I appreciate you uh, joining me on Enlighten Me and uh, telling this nice testimonial story that a lot of people need to hear. I appreciate you having me. Thank you. Of course. Of course. And uh, that's going to wrap this up, y'all. And. Uh, we appreciate y'all listening and y'all take care now. We're signing out.